I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. We've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism in our 1030 service. And the Catechism has been bringing us through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed. And recently we've been focusing on the articles that relate to Jesus Christ. We confess that we believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And of course, on Easter Sunday, we think upon the resurrection of Christ, uh, but at least for our 1030 service, we'll be thinking upon uh, that confession, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And we're going to do so by looking at Matthew 22, uh, the final verses of that chapter, uh, verses 41 through 46, as Jesus having been questioned by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, Jesus now asks them a question and reveals to them his true, not only identity, but whose son he is, whose son he ultimately is. And so we'll draw that out from Matthew 22, beginning at verse 41. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and here he quotes Psalm 110, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So far from God's holy word, we're going to turn to the catechism in the back of the hymnal we sang from, to Lord's Day 14. And that's on page 878, 878. And for those who may be unfamiliar with the catechism, it's simply just a question and answer format uh, that brings us through the various teachings of scripture. And so the catechism is not an authority in and of itself, uh, but it it, uh, faithfully summarizes for us and teaches us the truths that are found in God's word. And so here we're going to, the catechism focuses on what we mean when we confess, again, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So question 35, there's two questions there. I'll read the question. We'll respond together with the answer. So question 35, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Brothers, sisters, friends, Jesus here asks the Pharisees an important question. He asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son 
is he. And if you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you might realize that this question in various forms gets asked all throughout it. Earlier in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they respond, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say just the prophet. And then Jesus asks them the question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that confession, the confession that the church has continued to echo now even to this day. He confesses and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Later, when Jesus now makes his way to Jerusalem, as we looked at last week in the 1130 service, and he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and the peoples praise him, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. The question after his entrance is asked, who is this? And again, the people say, this is the prophet. And now Jesus, as he's speaking to the religious leaders who ought to know the answer to this question, These people have given their lives to pouring over the scriptures, to reading God's word, and he turns the question to them and asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And that's the main focus here. Whose son is the Christ? The question of sonship has to do with origin. From where does he come? From where does he derive his authority and his sovereignty? His power. In Jesus' day, a son was born and often and uh, most likely would simply just assume the position and rank that his father had. If his father was a carpenter, well, this was a carpenter. If his father was royalty and nobility, then the son also assumed position of royalty and nobility, right? The question of sonship was important to define what rank this person would have among the people in Jesus' day. Whose Son is he. And Jesus asks this question really to expose the Pharisees and specifically to expose the Pharisees' earthly mindedness. So again, this is a thing that's come up uh, time after time in our various studies in Matthew. But as we're going to see, the Pharisees conceived of the Christ as one who would further them in the present world. They conceived of the Christ as one who would benefit them and bring them into a position of higher authority in the present world. And Jesus, by asking, by asking them this question, corrects their misunderstanding of the sovereignty and power of the Christ by showing to them that the Christ is not one who will benefit them in this world, but one who will benefit them in the world to come, in the new world. Now, I use this language, this world, and the new world, because that's the language that Matthew uses. If you look back in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 29, notice this dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples. It says there, verse 23 of Matthew 19, that Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, right? So the rich person is the one who, of course, is rich in this world. He has a position, a high position in this world. And he says to his disciples that with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
drawing their minds to something greater, something that is transcendent, something above the world, the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Right? If those of great wealth and of great position in this world who seem to be blessed of God, if, they, if it's difficult for them to enter the kingdom, then who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you, right? So in contrast to the rich person, the disciples have left everything. They've taken a position of being nothing in this world. We have left everything and followed you, what then will we have? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he expands it to say, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. They will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, my sermon text is not this, and so I won't, there's much to explain here, but the language here is helpful for us to see how the Pharisees conceived of the Christ who benefited them only in this world. But Jesus corrects them to show that the true Christ is one who brings blessing of the new world. And so that's the contest. Um, That's what's at stake here as Jesus speaks with the Pharisees. And so we want to think about this in, in those two points. We want to think about the way the Pharisees conceived of the Christ as one who simply belonged to this world to better their position in it. And then secondly, we'll think about the true Christ of the new world who will bring his people into his glory there. So first, the Pharisees and their conception of the Christ as belonging to this world. When Jesus asks them the question, whose son is he? They maybe, you know, pushed their chest out a little bit and said, the son of David. And of course, in some sense, they would be correct. But the fact that Jesus goes on to then correct them by citing Psalm 110 reveals something that they're, that reveals that they're also missing something regarding Jesus, the Christ, as the son of David. In their minds, by confessing that Jesus is the son of David, they conceived of Jesus as David's heir, as the one who would inherit political sovereignty in this world. They conceived of David as one whom the Lord had raised up and given a great position in this world. And so by confessing that Jesus was the son of David... They confessed that Jesus derived his sovereignty and his power from David. 
Gerhardus Voss says this regarding what their belief entails here. He says, their confession that Jesus is the son of David entailed the belief that the Messiah moved in the national political sphere. For it was only in that sphere that inheritance from David could be the determining factor. It is this belief that our Lord wants to criticize. And he does so by placing over against the Pharisees' idea the other, the true Messiah, who lifts himself to the plane of the world to come. And so the Pharisees conceived of the coming Christ, the Messiah, merely as one who would have political authority in the present world, that he was simply David's heir and nothing more than that. And this revealed the Pharisees' own hearts, right? Because they longed for the Christ and they anticipated the Christ and they wanted a Christ who would simply better their position in this world. A son of David who would again establish a kingdom in this world would be one who would allow them to come to power themselves. They were the religious leaders. And if David's son came to the throne, their position in this world would be bettered. The Roman rule over them would be overthrown. And they would be one um, who would have great rank and power and honor in this world. So Jesus, though, wants to correct this temptation to conceive of the Christ as only one who brings benefits to his people in this world. Again, earlier when he spoke to his disciples, he spoke to them of the world to come, the new world, the new creation that the Christ would establish, and the new creation that would dawn in his resurrection as the first fruits of the new creation. Jesus wants to lift the Pharisees' minds, not just from earthly thinking, but now to conceive of the Christ as one whose glory far transcends this world. Whose glory is one not of this world in which it is hidden, but that his glory begets a new world. And so, as he asks them the question, whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. He then, as we come to our second point, the Christ the true Christ of the world to come, Jesus says to them, after he asks them the question, Matthew 22, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? An interesting question. And so Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 110, a psalm that was penned by David himself. And in that psalm, as David quotes, David speaks of his son also as his Lord. How can the same person be both David's son and David's Lord? And what Jesus is getting at here is that David in Psalm 110 saw, as in a, a glimpse, the fact that the son that was promised to him, you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and says that I will establish your house and a son will come from your throne and, of, and his kingdom will have no end and from his hand the scepter will never be removed. David understood that there was a glory that would come to his son that transcended his own glory. 
He understood that the son to come would be one who would be empowered by God and endowed by God with glory that far surpassed mere political sovereignty over this world. And so David, by faith, spoke of his son then also as his Lord. And now with greater clarity, we hear David's words and knew that he looked forward to the very son of God who would be born from his line. That the son of David would be David's Lord because it would be God himself in the flesh who would come, born of David's line. It's here in Matthew chapter 1 that the whole opening of Jesus' genealogy of the book of Matthew uh, brings us to. Verse 1 of the whole book of Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he goes through Jesus' genealogy until he comes to the point that Jesus, uh, to demonstrate the point that Jesus is of the royal lineage of David. But more than that, he is the son of God who has come in the flesh. David saw by faith in in a mirror dimly and darkly He saw that his son would have a glory that would far surpass his own. And it's because it would be the very son of God who would be born of his line. Of course, not deserved by David's line. Read the book of Kings. It's a spiraling downward of kings uh, going after idols and idolatry and disobedience before the Lord. But in God's grace, in his mercy, he gives to the line of David... A king, the one he looked forward to, even the very son of God. Jesus Christ then is both David's son and David's Lord. And the glory that he has, again, is the glory that far transcends the glory of this world. Even the glory that David himself possessed as he ruled from his throne in Jerusalem on earth. Rather, the glory that Jesus Christ will receive the glory that the Pharisees were blind to because they only looked for the betterment of themselves in this world. But the glory that Jesus Christ receives is the glory of the kingdom of heaven. A glory that transcends this world. This world, as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, is passing away along with all of its desires. The glory of this world goes with it. And if Christ was only to obtain such that, that glory, his glory would be temporary. And he would not fulfill the promise that God gave to David that his son would reign over a kingdom forever and ever. And so we then, by faith, as Jesus tests them, calls them to raise our eyes from this world to the world to come. From this earth and our betterment in it to the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus Christ is the son of David, but he also is David's Lord, for his glory far, far transcends his own. He is the very son of God come in the flesh. And therefore, as we hear these questions, as these questions are brought to you directly, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? As we answer that question, we confess that he is the son of David, 
as he fulfills the promise God gave long ago, and that he is the Son of God, whose glory will far transcend the glory of David. I want to conclude with Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, as a kind of test case. Thinking about the way the Pharisees would read Psalm 2 and the way Jesus would correct them to read Psalm 2. And so Psalm 2, just a couple of verses there, begins with the nations raging, the kings plotting in vain against God and his anointed one. And against, um, over against them, God, it says, sits in the heavens and laughs as he establishes his king and sets him up on his holy hill. And notice Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The Pharisees would hear this, and they would rejoice because it simply meant for them that as those who looked for the Christ, they would be in a position of authority in this world. They would control it. They would have honor and prestige in the political sphere of this world. The nations are the inheritance of this son, the son of David. But Jesus corrects them by saying, no, the Messiah will be descended from David but as his son, but he will also be David's Lord. And his rule will be over not this world, but the world to come, the new world that Jesus himself spoke of in Matthew 19. And so as we think upon the Christ, we look up, he himself raises our gaze and raises our eyes to look to the world to come. As Jesus himself, as he will uh, establish his kingdom through his death and his resurrection, He'll proclaim to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In so saying this, he is heralding that the new world has begun. The world in which he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. The Pharisees will pass away with this world because that is where their hearts were set. But the disciples of Jesus, as they are raised by Christ himself to heaven, store up for themselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroy. And we confess then that Jesus Christ is both David's son and David's Lord, whose glory far surpasses the glory of any earthly king in this world, for he is the king of the new world, the world to come. And he has been raised from the dead for that purpose, that through his resurrection he has been inaugurated, he has been crowned as king of kings, and Lord of Lords. And though his glory in this world today is hidden, when he comes again and establishes the new world as he promises, the new creation in which we will dwell with him forever and ever, it's there that he will be preeminent as David's son and David's Lord. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as he came to a people whose minds were fixed on this world and their position in it, they were unable to receive him because he spoke of a world to come. And he spoke of glory that awaited them far beyond this world. And so, Father, it's not a matter of narrowing our gaze, but expanding it, looking heavenward and looking up and above to see the glory that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, thank you that you sent your son for this purpose, and that even as he promised his disciples to reign with him over all creation forever and ever, so too, Lord, we look forward to that day when we share in the glory of Christ our King. As Paul reminds us that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Father, may our eyes and our hearts be set upon that glory, the true glory of the only begotten Son of God, the one who is David's Son and David's Lord, even our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.